If you listen to preachers long enough, you will learn the secrets of their trade and craft. You will pick up on their little ticks and rhythms. And if you listen carefully enough, you will even be able to predict where they are going before they take you there. Such is the relationship between pastors and their congregations. But I'll tell you a secret that might help you. Most of us use some version of a hook, book, look, and took formula to structure our sermons. Hook is for attention. Book is for explanation. Look is for illustration. Took is for application. Hook, book, look, and took. We figure if it's good enough for little children, it's good enough for big children as well. Well, sometimes the hook is so impactful that the main thing people take away from the sermon is the hook. Or the look works so well that it's all people can think about. Just this morning, I was trying to figure out how to work in the China spy balloon into an illustration for this sermon. And since I could not think of one, we are stuck thinking about our last six minutes on the mat or thinking about the power of sound and how at 400 decibels we all die or concrete melts or even the voice that raises the dead. Like prayers, illustrations can be powerful and effective, but they can also take on a life of their own. And this is sort of what happened to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, he used an illustration from one of the prophets in the Old Testament, an illustration about the divine potter and human clay. He simply wanted to talk about God's sovereign rights as creator over man's responsibility before God as a creature. And summarizing his argument in Romans 9, he said, When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make two different kinds of vessels? One, a jar for decoration, perhaps another, a jar for collecting garbage. One, a vase for holding flowers, another, a pot for cooking beans. One, a vessel to showcase his mercy another a vessel to showcase his wrath. Paul's hook and look came straight out of the book in Jeremiah chapter 18. But that is not what people took away from Romans 9. Sadly, the potter and clay illustration has taken on a life of its own. And so some people will emphasize the sovereignty of the potter to the exclusion of the dignity of the clay. And others will emphasize the liberty of the clay to the exclusion of the sovereignty of the potter. One leads to a cold religious determinism that exalts God yet devalues man. The other leads to a religious humanism that elevates man yet it diminishes God. And as a result... Debates and disputes over all these things have led to the formation of different tribes and cliques within the Christian church. I say all that to say this. 
Redeemer Rock Wall is a Presbyterian and Reformed congregation. And I know that many of you are coming to us from different traditions. We all have faith in Christ, but we have differences as well. And my concern is that some of you might have heard scary rumors or seen some crazy caricatures about us, folks like us, and what we allegedly believe. You might have heard that we only hold to God's sovereignty and that we care next to nothing about man's responsibility, dignity, or liberty. And I want to dispel that myth and rumor. The truth is that our denomination and the pastors of this congregation take both truths very seriously. We hold both to the potter's sovereign rights and to the clay's personal responsibility. We believe in God's liberty and in man's dignity. And we believe that somehow, some way that we will never be able to explain all these things work together in profoundly mysterious ways. And let me show you what I mean by speaking what the Bible speaks and by echoing the heartfelt words of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember the last time we saw Paul? He was in chains under house arrest in Rome. And for two whole years, he's welcoming into his house morning and evening all who would come. And he's testifying to everyone from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and the Savior of the world. Specifically, he's opening the Old Testament scriptures and trying to convince his own Jewish kinsmen from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Prior to his prison ministry, he had sent the letter of Romans to the Christians at Rome. And in that letter, he shared his heartfelt desire for his Jewish kinsmen. In Romans 9, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, damned, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In Romans 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Keep in mind that these are the words of the same man who echoed the prophet's potter and clay illustration. The same man who said that from one lump of human clay, the potter has the right to make vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And yet, when he looks upon his kinsmen... And he sees his people who are running from God, rejecting Christ and resisting the Holy Spirit. He weeps for them. He prays for them. He feels anguish in his heart over them. He testifies to them about the gospel of God's grace. He tries to convince them and persuade them and reason with them to turn from their sins and to trust in Jesus. And what was their response to all of his gestures of love and kindness, his concern for them? Well, they often threatened him. 
drove him out of the synagogue, excommunicated him, stoned him, threatened him, dragged him before kings and courts. Were they acting like vessels of mercy in those moments? No. They were acting like vessels of wrath. Was there a chance that they could change and become vessels of mercy? Yes. And was that a real chance? Yes. Absolutely. You see, the Apostle Paul was living proof that even the worst of sinners can change. That the Lord Jesus Christ has the grace and the power and the love to change lives. And so the Apostle Paul did not live as though the game is fixed and the board is set and nothing could ever be changed or altered in space-time history. He was living proof that the gospel has the power to transform a man from a vessel of wrath into a vessel of mercy. He was living proof that sinners can change. So he did not give up on his people even when it seemed they had given up on him. Even when it seemed they had given the stiff arm or middle finger to Jesus. He wanted them to be saved so badly that he could even imagine a case in which he takes their place in hell so that they could take his place in heaven. He was willing to be cursed and cut off so that they could be grafted in and blessed. This is simply his way of echoing the heart of Christ for the world. There was no need for him to do that because Christ had already done it. But he knew about the heart's doubts and despair among his people. He knew about their disputations. He knew his people so well that he could anticipate the pushback from them. His kinsmen are zealous, yet they do not know the truth. And since they do not know the righteousness about God, they decide to seek to establish their own form of righteousness that parodied or mirrored God's righteousness rather than submit to his. They knew that the law said, the person who does these commandments shall live by them, but they also knew that the law said, the person who does not do these things will die by them. The wages of sin is death. So what do they do? Well, they do what all religious people do. They came up with all sorts of traditions and customs, overtures and practices to help them better obey God's law, or so they thought. And Paul knew by experience that that approach does not work. It simply does not solve the deeper problem of the heart. Zeal is good, but it's not good enough. Passion for God is no substitute for knowing the truth. Ignorance might be a reason for some, but it is an excuse for no one. Keeping man's rules about God's law is no substitute for keeping God's law. Paul could relate to his kinsmen in all these ways because he had walked in their sandals. He had graduated from their seminaries. He had served in their synagogues. He understood what was at stake. And he could look back on his 
life and see that before Christ came, he was filled with loads of self-righteous confidence as to a law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Really, Paul, blameless, he says of himself. He could relate to his kinsmen in all these ways because he understood the life of seeking your own form of righteousness. He once described himself in this way as a deeply religious fundamentalist without the Spirit. That's my summary of Romans 7, where he confesses what zeal without knowledge and works without grace looks and feels like in real life. Some of you can relate. He says, I don't understand my actions. I don't know what I, 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 don't, know what I do. I, don't, I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Sin dwells in me, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Zeal and passion for God is not enough. Paul understood the spiritual and psychological torment of struggling through life in sin and stumbling towards eternity as a sinner, as a vessel of wrath. The scriptures tell us that he spent three days fasting and praying in blindness after Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. And it was during those three days that he was conscience-stricken and soul-sick. And he cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? It was after he met Christ that he came to the end of himself. That's what it means to be wretched. You come to the end of your strength, the end of your resources, the end of your excuses, and you find yourself weary and wiped out, wasted. That's what a wretched man is. Who will deliver me? And finally, after all these years, he's asking the right question. The question assumes that someone is there to save me. The question assumes that there is a chance that I could be changed, that I could be delivered. The question confesses that I cannot do it on my own. I need someone who can do for me what I cannot do for myself. This is what Paul wants his kinsmen to know, to feel, to believe in their hearts. And so he answers the question, first, by appealing to scriptures. Second, by reading them in light of the gospel. The righteousness that comes by law says, the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven and bring it down to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. 
The word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. Only we can't. And we won't. And we don't. And so without Christ, what are we stuck with? Propositional and practical religion that puts the burden on you and on you alone. Good luck with all that. But the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ makes even the law sound like the gospel. Notice how Paul rereads Moses when he says, Christ is the end goal of the law. So do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, not so that you can do it. Not so that you can do it. But so that you can trust that Christ did it for you. That he descended into hell for you. That the third day he rose again for you. That he ascended into heaven for you. The righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ does not ask for more commandments, more statutes, more rules, more law. It asks for a Savior, a person, God in the flesh. And this is the word of faith that we proclaim, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. With Christ, you're saved by a personal, relational Savior that takes the burden off of you and puts it on himself. Christ is the end goal of the law for righteousness. For everyone who believes, everyone who believes, everyone. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. To be justified means to be made right with God by an act of God's free grace. To be saved is to be rescued and released from the bondage and burden of being the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone, everyone 
For there is no distinction between one race or another, no tr- or one tribe or another, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and the same Lord bestows riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. I open the sermon with one part of the story of the potter and the clay. I want to close it with the other part of that story now. As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, declares the Lord. If I announce that a certain people is to be condemned, uprooted, torn down, destroyed, but then they renounce their evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will save and plant up and build up a certain people, but they turn to do evil and refuse to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Behold the fairness of God. Behold the fairness of God. If you want to be a vessel of mercy for the praise of his glorious grace, he will make you into one. If you insist on being a vessel of wrath, For the praise of his justice, he will make you into one. What do you want the potter to do with you? How do you want him to shape your life? Take note of the kindness and the severity of God. That he is severe towards anyone who refuses to trust him and turn away from him. But he is kind to everyone who turns from sin and trusts in his kindness and keeps on trusting in his kindness. So with all that in mind, let me ask you some questions. Who can change you from a vessel of wrath to a vessel of mercy? Who can deliver you from the body of sin and death? Who can save you, body and soul, from your sin and from yourself? Who can give you ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe that you may be saved? The answer and the only answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds out his nail-pierced hands for you. He opens wide his heart to you. He waits patiently and longs to welcome you home. And now, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice. Choose life by holding fast to him. Choose life that you and your children may live, for he is your life and the length 
of your days. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let them all believe and not be shamed, and let them confess and so be saved by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. For you, O Lord, are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all who hate him, he will destroy. Hear our prayers for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.